Well, oh, that was loud, wasn't it? I gave myself a shock then. Um, good morning, everyone. Is anyone wishing it would also physically rain right now? Anyone feeling a little bit warm, a little bit hot, a bit of physical rain in the building? <laughs> I won't sit too close to you then, Rachel. Um, great. So um, this morning we have the final part in our series on Live No Lies, which um, as you've been aware, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, is based on a book by John Mark Comer called uh, Live No Lies. And the whole basis of the understanding that we're looking at is the understanding that actually that deceptive ideas that is, lies the devil tells, play to the disordered desires in our lives, that is what um, many uh, ancient Christian authors would talk about as the flesh, and Paul talks about as the flesh, and they are normalized in a sinful society, that is the world. And uh, we have some resources available as well, uh, so the book is well worth reading if you haven't picked it up and read it yet. Out of interest, who has who bought the book or read the book or partly read the book? Um, good few of you, and also the podcasts are great, especially this cultural moment. I'd highly recommend starting right at the beginning of all those series. Um, but talking about books and podcasts and those sorts of things, I had an interesting conversation in the office uh, just this last week. So Sarah, who is our wonderful new children's worker, and I have been ta- chatting about, about books and about some great books. She's read quite a few books that I would really like to read. And she said to me in the office, she said, would you like, she listens to the, many of her books as well as reading them, and she's got them on her Amazon Audible account. And she said, would you like the password to my Audible account so you can listen to some of the books? And I thought, that's a great idea. And then I suddenly had that moment where I went, is that okay? Are you, are you allowed to do that? And then we worked it out and we chatted it through and we figured out, well, if you had a physical book, you'd lend it, wouldn't you? So actually, if she's just lending it to me and I can listen to it, not listen at the same time, that's the same as lending a book. But what it got us thinking about was those good old days. Are they good old days? I don't know. Do you remember them? For those who are maybe, I don't know, like 30 up, maybe 20 up, you might not. When you used to burn CDs... No. Okay, anyone like 25 and under, like what on earth is that? A CD was this little disc, like a little pancake, a bit hard, and you put it in a machine, and it was magic, so it make music come out. And they, so, yes, Stuart is taking me even further back. So in my day, when I was a kid, it wasn't CDs, it was cassette tapes. And I remember my mate introduced me to U2, that classic album, um, The Joshua Tree. He copied it and he gave it to me and I listened to it on my Walkman. <laughs> Although I couldn't afford a Sony Walkman, so it was like cheap ripoff. And actually, I remember the day I bought my little Walkman, I walked home listening to the Top Gun soundtrack. I'm feeling very, very cool, which may or may not have been on a copy tape. I can't remember if I owned that or not. But the fact was, it became pretty complex, didn't it, that you would uh, copy a CD or someone copy a CD or a cassette tape, uh, and they'd give it to a friend. Now, actually, technically, that was stealing. And does anyone remember when you go and get either a VHS or a DVD from the video store, do you remember those places? Blockbuster video, and at the start of it, it had this advert, and it was something like breaking into a car, and it said something like, um, you wouldn't steal a car, and then piracy is theft. But most of us, 
in reality actually did listen to CDs or tapes that our mates had copied and given to us. And actually it became acceptable, didn't it? Now, if I'd said to one of my friends who happily copied me a latest, I don't know, album of the wonder stuff, dating myself, or the cure, and I'd said, look, I'm really sorry, but I don't steal, I would have got a whole load of like, backlash from my mates going, who are you to judge me? What's going on? Because actually in that moment, though we recognize that universally in pretty much every culture in the world, stealing is wrong, something shifted that went, stealing is wrong, but this is okay. And actually we were more likely to be judged for judging someone than we were to actually be judged for borrowing and copying that CD. Some sort of moral line had been crossed and flipped around. The moral line had moved over stealing. And it was now worse to judge someone for stealing than to do it. Now, this is a good example. We probably want to why on earth am I talking about any of this right now? But this is a good example, actually, of what Jesus and the New Testament writers um, call the world, which is the third enemy of the soul that we're looking at as we finish this series. So what does Jesus have to say about the world? He actually says quite a lot about the world. So if we look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, it's on the screen. Jesus said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul. Basically, he's warning us not to fall under the spell of the world. He saw it as a great threat that we needed to guard against. In John chapter 15, this is Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he's betrayed. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So Jesus tells us that our relationship with the world is actually a hostile relationship. However, despite Jesus' semi-hostile relationship with the world, his intention was never that his followers abdicate their responsibilities in the world and are removed out of the world whilst on this earth. John 17, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says this, I've given them your word. He's talking about us, his disciples, and those who follow. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So what did Jesus mean when he was talking about the world? Now, the word, the word world, the word world in Greek is cosmos. And it has a variety of different meanings in different contexts. But in this context, what it refers to is the system and practices and standards associated with secular society. And when we're talking about secular society, we are talking about a society and a culture that attempts to live as if there is no God. John Mark Homer, in the book, gives this definition of the world. It's a system of ideas, 
values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So the world is what happens when a lot of people give in to the flesh and those base animal instincts and desires, and that's normalized. So um, a good example, a, a tragic example, but an example of this is slavery in North America. So in North America, slavery started with just a few people owning slaves, but then a few more people bought slaves, and then many more bought slaves. And then it became accepted as a necessary evil. Actually, it was codified into law. The ownership of slaves was okay. And it was even justified in some church circles. And it became, in North America, just the way things were, the culture, the norm. And through it, horrendous evil was normalized amongst a whole nation and a continent. The world is what happens when Adam and Eve's sin goes viral and spreads throughout society. And social um, psychologists, interestingly, have recognized that um, behaviors, both good and bad, spread rapidly through networks of friends and acquaintances. And they say actually it spreads in a similar way to a virus leading over time to widespread social acceptance of certain behaviors. They can be good behaviors, and they can also be bad behaviors. Now, widespread social acceptance does not mean that idea is true or mean that that idea leads to human flourishing. If you are a parent here or you know children at all, you have probably been in that situation where a child wants to do something that they are not allowed to do, and they say, well, all my mates are doing it. My mates' parents let them watch 15s when they're five. Or, oh, yeah, all my mates, have, their parents have bought them iPhones. Or, I'm only 10, but yes, I'm now, I, my mates are on TikTok. We all know that those widespread, normally accepted things are not actually necessarily good for us. And as parents, we want to protect our children things that we don't think are going to make them flourish. And history actually teaches that often the majority is wrong about things. Take the fact that probably 70 years ago, the majority of the population smoked because that was what you do. We've subsequently found out how harmful and damaging smoking is. Crowds often more foolish than wise. And the biblical authors knew this really well. So Paul in Corinthians, and it looks here like he was actually quoting an old wisdom saying, says that bad company corrupts good character. Because we become like the people we associate with. We become like the culture that we're part of. And this is really important for us to understand if we want to follow Jesus and stay true to Jesus' mental maps of how we live, how we flourish, and his intentions for us. And A.W. Tozer used a bit of an analogy for this. So in the olden days, if you were navigating a sailing ship before you had GPS and all of that kind of stuff, you would use, if you're out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you would use a sextant. 
And this was a device that enabled you to identify at night. In fact, there are some people in this room who used to use sextants. I believe Dave Bonnie used to use them. So Dave, you can correct me if I've got this completely wrong later. But you would use the sextant at night to take some sightings to establish your position. And particularly important in terms of taking that sighting was establishing where true north is. Now, if you are at night and you have not got a compass and you've also not got Google Maps, then, and you want to know where north is, I'm going to give you a little lesson on how you do that. So if you see the plough on the left-hand side, which is one of the easiest of the constellations to identify, I used to think it was called the frying pan, it looks more of a frying pan saucepan, doesn't it? But you take the end two stars, far right-hand side, and you draw a straight line, five times the length of that little gap, one, two, three, four, five, you find the pole star. And the pole star is within one degree of geographical north. And so therefore, if you know where the pole star is, you can orientate yourself and you can work out where you need to go from there. And we in this world and our culture, we once navigated our place in the world by the true north of God and his vision of good and evil. But in the world, particularly the secular and progressive West, we no longer get our bearings from God from True North. The new authority, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is the authentic self. And we define that by our feelings and desires, which of course change over time. And the result is that we've completely lost any sense of direction other than from our own internal emotional rudders, which all too frequently leads us astray. And it's a little bit as though in order to navigate the ship, we're in the middle of the ocean, we're not quite sure where we are, we're all trying to work out the direction, and then we all just spin around with our eyes closed and stop, and then we head off in that direction. Although what normally happens is whoever is the most confident in pointing out the direction is the one that everyone else follows. As you can imagine, a ship trying to get from Southampton to New York in that way is probably never going to make it. So we find ourselves in a cultural moment, particularly in the West, where what was universally condemned is now celebrated, where what was universally celebrated is now condemned, and where those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians. He says, the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Now, I have to be really clear here. Jesus and Paul aren't saying that everything that people value highly is detestable. Or that, uh, you know, there are many things uh, in our secular society that people in secular society value that are actually wonderful. And it doesn't mean that the only wisdom is found within the Christian world or the Christian sphere. There is much wisdom available in the world. But they do seem to be saying that there are some things that many people value, that many people promote and celebrate and parade that God has a radically different take on. And we would be wise to slow down and honestly seek out Jesus on the moral issues of our day. If we did, we would find at least a few examples of jarring differences between what Jesus says and both the left and the right of the political spectrum. At key stages of history, the church has played a powerful and transforming role in culture. And the early church actually overcame the bastion of paganism and the Roman Empire and saw massive transformation 
in just a few hundred years. It didn't do it by being relevant and relatable. It actually did it through the power of God and by being distinct and different. The church was a compelling alternative to the status quo, to the culture around. Now sadly, a growing number of people are now more loyal to their secular ideology or their political feelings and leanings than they are to Jesus and his teachings. And that's some of us in the church. I know I feel that own tension in my own life as I find myself influenced by the prevailing narratives in my news feeds, some of which are clearly at odds with the way of Jesus. John Mark Comer writes this, which I think is really poignant. Followers of Jesus need to come back to the reality that baptism is their primary pledge of allegiance. Jesus' vision of flourishing life is often 180 degrees in the opposite direction to the moral norms of our culture. I can only wonder at God's sadness as he sees the redefinition of good and evil in our society. A society where lust is redefined as love. Where marriage is not seen as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract instead for personal fulfillment. Where divorce is celebrated as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows. Where the objectification of women's sexuality through porn is seen as female empowerment. Where greed is viewed as responsibility to shareholders. Where gross injustice towards factory workers in many parts of the developing world is seen as globalism. Where environmental degradation and destruction is seen as progress. And where abortion, perhaps the greatest infanticide in human history, has been recast as reproductive justice. Much of what we call culture, Jesus and his followers call the world. And they saw the world as the enemy to the soul. Now, again, I need to be really clear here. The people of the world are not the enemy. They are the object of Jesus' love. Jesus said so clearly that famous verse, John 3:16, For God so loved the people of the world, that's who he's talking about, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our fight isn't against them, it is for them. As we saw earlier this morning, the spirit filling us that we can go and carry God's love. But we don't actually talk much about the world anymore in the Western church. I don't know how you feel this morning as we're talking about this. I don't know when we last talked about the world. I'm not sure we ever have in my time here in our church. I wonder why not. Is it perhaps because we've been to some extent colonized by the world? Now the church used to rail against the dangers of the world about against you know, TV and secular music and dancing and drinking. I remember talking um, to some, uh, of a couple of the, the, the guys here who were part of the original founding of the church back in 1975, here as students. I remember hearing about them um, throwing away their Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin albums. I remember the person I was talking to was a little bit regretful. They wanted to listen to them still. 
I remember a lady at my church where I grew up in Exeter who moved away to another city to join another church and came back a few months later complaining that the church wasn't fit because they watched too much telly. Um, But the reality is most of the church has moved so far away that we now never mention the world at all. And maybe we would be wise to explore some of the reasons behind why we used to warn of the dangers of the world. Because in failing to talk about it, many followers of Jesus are now blind to the threat posed by the cultural environment that we live in. And the gravitational pull of the world is stronger now than it has been in centuries. Many uh, social commentators and um, sort of uh, and academics would actually view us as now living in a post-Christian culture. The Christian culture ran from the, the kind of the spread of Christianity across the Roman Empire up until probably maybe a century or so ago, maybe 50 years ago. But now in a post-Christian culture, it's a culture that takes the framework that Christianity laid over nearly 2,000 years with fairness and justice and rights celebrated, but kicks Christianity and the idea of God out of the picture. It's a culture that wants the king, the things that following Jesus brings, so it wants the kingdom, sorry, but without the king. And we as Christians are increasingly becoming colonized by that post-Christian culture just as we we spend our time in the middle and the mix of it all. And through the soft power of media and TV and film and internet and social media, the values that we would never have agreed to previously become increasingly embedded in our thinking without us even being aware of it, particularly around things like sex and consumerism and identity. There are parts of the world where hard power is the issue. That is state oppression and persecution. If you're in China or North Korea or Iran, that would be of great concern and of great risk. But actually here it's the soft power, the daily subtle or not so subtle influences of advertising, films and news story and social media feeds. It's a far greater threat. It's subtle, but it's corrosive and it eats away at our hearts. It appeals to our flesh until one day we wake up and look around and realize, maybe we've been colonized. How much of it seems so innocent? I remember as I was just finishing out university, uh, Friends came out. Um, who likes Friends? But I'm talking, you know, the old TV series. And I think it had a 20-year anniversary recently, didn't it? And it seemed so fun and, and innocent, and it really appealed to us. We were a bunch of students and just post-students hanging out together and all that sort of thing. It was funny. It was relatable. But actually, subtly, as we enjoyed it, it consistently reinforced the idea that casual sexual relationships were fun, they didn't carry any baggage, and they were completely normal. They gradually shaped our thinking and our acceptance, whether we were conscious of it or not, that that was just the way things were, and that many of us were maybe missing out. Every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture that I'm a part of? Now, the temptation in the West is less towards atheism, but more towards building just a, a DIY kind of faith. It's a mix of the way of Jesus, some consumerism, some sexual, secular, sexual ethics, and radical individualism. 
So that's the pull of the world. That's the direction that we get led. That's what Jesus and New Testament writers were warning about. So how do we resist the world, this enemy of the soul? We have to remember spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices. Remember, as we've talked over the weeks, that they are a form of warfare. To resist the world, we need the most basic practice of all. We need the church. The call to Jesus has always been a call into community. When he invited the disciples to follow them, for each disciple he was inviting them into a community of 11 other disciples and more around. And by following Jesus together, rather than alone, we are able to discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies. We're able to help one another override the flesh by the Spirit. And we form a robust community of deep relationships that function as a counterculture to the world and the culture around us. And if there's one crucial idea that we need to recapture in our generation, it's the idea of the church as a counterculture. The church, when it functions as it should, is a beautiful resistance to the world. The church is or certainly should be an alternative society. I've read it described this way, as a group on the margins of the host culture, living an alternate but compelling and beautiful way, a prophetic signpost to kingdom life. Jesus' vision is of the church as a city on a hill shining brightly. It's him saying, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we're called to. And there is a tremendous opportunity for all the doom and gloom I've cast so far this morning. There is a wonderful opportunity in our cultural moment for the church to come back to its roots as a counterculture. And maybe for us as the church, maybe for us as individuals, we need to make peace with the reality that we will never fit in, not fully. That we will never be cool that we will never be liked and respected and admired by our culture if we follow the way of Jesus. But that's okay. The word church or ecclesia in Greek, and we heard a lot from uh, Billy about that, didn't we, about a year ago, literally means those who are called out. It's a community, not of comfort, but it's a community of calling to be called out. And I believe we need Sundays times like this more than ever to break that week-long secular programming of our minds and that pull towards the world to receive God's healing and refreshing. But we need more than that too. More than just gathering together on a Sunday. We need to build deep and honest and accountable relationships so that we become a robust counterculture for the sake of the world, not for us but that the world around us will be blessed through us. And we're not just against evil, but we are for good. We're for love and joy and thriving marriages and children brought up in loving delight and for adults moving away from self-centered egotism into becoming people of love. We're for true freedom, for justice for all, for unity in diversity. And to become a church for our time, there are three areas that we need to push into. Firstly, that we would become a community of deep relational ties in the midst of a culture of individualism and isolation. That we would 
discover and walk in deep commitment to one another, whether through our small groups or our missional communities or just as one another, as followers of Jesus, to places of open and honest accountability that spur one another on in community as followers of Jesus. And we are so blessed in this church to have such a community of faith and such opportunity for walking together in that way. Secondly, the church needs to be a community of holiness in a culture of hedonism. What we do with our bodies does actually matter. The cultural narrative says it doesn't, but Jesus says that it does, especially regarding how we use our sexuality. Because it's probably the primary test of our generation's faithfulness to the way of Jesus in contrast to the world's ideas and ideologies. Actually, it's one of the most common ways that the New Testament talks about non-Christians is contrasting their secular behavior, their sexual behavior with that of those followers of Jesus. And because sexuality has always been in an arena where the followers of Jesus stand in sharp contrast to the world. Committed monogamy in marriage was a radical idea in the Greco-Roman world. Radical idea. It became traditional because actually so many people discovered and realized that it led to human flourishing. So in a post-Christian world where everything is deconstructed, actually the idea of committed, monogamous, lifelong marriage has become radical once again. We're the radical ones. And thirdly, that we would develop a community of order in a culture of chaos. You know, in times of chaos, the church has moved towards order. It was at the, the time when the Roman Empire was falling apart and everything was just crumbling, that the monastic movements began in the 4th and 5th century, that people retreated out and retreated into deserts initially and started developing these, these, these practices and then coming back and bringing that to those who hadn't come to the desert themselves, bringing stability in a culture of decay and peace in a time of anxiety. And many of those monastic orders developed themselves around a rule of life. It wasn't about rules, it was about creating rhythms that helped to align us to Jesus and lead us towards him. Things like practice of prayer and reading scripture and solitude and silence and fasting that bring order to our lives and lead us to Jesus. And we can do that today. We can do that personally. We can do that corporately. We can do that with one or two with friends together to develop a rule of life, to develop those rhythms and those spiritual practices that keep us pointing towards Jesus and identifying where the world is pulling us in the other direction. And we even, on our website, have a rule of life generator that you can go on this afternoon if you want to and help you develop a rule of life. The church is what some have called a creative minority, which is a small but influential group of committed citizens who, motivated by love, bless their culture, not from the center, but from the margins. And the Bible refers to a creative uh, minority as a remnant. It's those who remain faithful to God in a culture that isn't faithful to him. And Jesus was the ultimate example of this, and he changed the world through his example. So the question for us today is, will we join Jesus in that remnant? Will we join him? as that creative minority, staying true to him, but bringing life and blessing around us. 
And what if this bewildering cultural moment where so much is changing so fast isn't actually a threat to fear, but instead is a chance for something new to be born? You know, the church in exile throughout history has not died. It has flourished and thrived. What if there is something of God in all this? Secular ideology is failing. People can't live without meaning and purpose and community, and the secular world doesn't offering them much of that. But Jesus can. What if the church were to come back to her call as a community radiant with the love of God? It could be our finest hour. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we recognize that there are some things in Scripture that we just have to delve into and grapple with. You talked about the world and the pull it has and the dangers of the world. We've spoken about it here this morning for the first time in years. Lord, we thank you, Father, that you come to bring life and freedom and hope and joy. Would you open our eyes to see what it is you have for us and what you want of us as a church? Lord, that in this moment where so much seems to be moving around us in our culture and changing, that you would give us the courage to stay true to you, but to walk in love. And maybe we just take a moment just to reflect as we talked about those, those three areas, about building a community of deep relational ties, walking in holiness, and bringing order in chaos. Maybe we just shut our eyes and have a time just reflect. Maybe ask this question, where do I need to build deeper relational ties to help me walk strong with Jesus? Where do I need to place myself? Who do I need around me in my life? Which relationships do I need to foster? A missional community to join or a pattern group or a friend I need to have over for coffee? Ask specifically how you could do that this week. Another question, where is God calling you to deeper holiness? particularly in the way that you use your body and your sexuality. And finally, what regular practices can you start or restart that help you resist the pull of the world? And is there anything that you actually need to stop doing or reading or watching or listening to that is leading you in the other direction? Maybe think about drawing up a rule of life which is just saying, I want to follow a few patterns and rhythms and incorporate some things in my life on a regular basis, either on your own or with friends. Father, we ask that as we go from here, Lord, you would speak to us, lead us. That we would not be people who are afraid of the world, but we would be people who walk distinctly from it with our allegiance firmly set on you. And that we'll be people who bring your life and your love into the culture and the world around us.
Amen.